Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Four Corners. My name is Ben. I am really, really glad you're here. You've caught us on the second week of our Seaworthy message series. Now, in the mid-1800s, a guy by the name of Washington Irving wrote a story about Christopher Columbus. He portrayed it as history, but it wasn't complete history. It was a little bit of fabrication and fanciful thinking. But it set in our minds what Christopher Columbus did. Now, you may remember what Christopher Columbus did in 1492. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah, there you go. And uh, he's credited with discovering America, North America, South America. Now, the truth is he didn't discover it. There were people here before. In fact, there were Europeans here before. But what Christopher Columbus did is he made Europe very aware of the presence of this new world. Now, the story was told by Washington Irving that one day Christopher Columbus was holding an orange in his hand and a butterfly landed on it. And he watched the butterfly walk from the top portion of the orange all the way around to the bottom portion of the orange and he didn't fall off and it got him thinking about the world and so it goes that the story says Christopher Columbus then realized over time that the world wasn't flat in fact it was round and he gained then the boldness to venture out well, that's not quite exactly the way it happened. What happened was he read Aristotle and Ptolemy, and in reading their works where they both suggested that the earth was round, he became convinced that these very smart men from hundreds of years before him were in fact right, and that's what gave him the confidence to sail out and do what he wanted to do. Now the reason I start with that story is we're in the middle of the seaworthy message series is this what Christopher Columbus did in reading Aristotle and Ptolemy and taking that information into his head and reflecting on it is exactly the same process I want to encourage you to engage in today. Uh, God gave us the gift of his word. He gave us his abiding presence. He's given us pathways to walk that help us connect with him. And, and here was his intent. He wanted us to know him. He wanted us to understand him and his ways. He didn't want to be a mystery to us. He wanted to come close to us. And when providing these pathways for us to get to know him, his hope isn't just that we have a friendship or an intimacy or a connection. That, that certainly is part of his hope, but that's not all that he wants. He wants our knowledge of him to change us. He wants what we understand about him to give us boldness to venture out, to do what he's called us to do, to walk freely with him, to not be encumbered by the prevailing notions of the world, Instead, to be thoroughly convinced and have faith in him such that we walk confidently and boldly in who he's made us to be. The idea here is very simple. That as we renew our minds, as we get new information, as we take in new stuff, it grows our faith. As we take in new information, our faith grows. Now this whole message series, here's our understanding. That God wants us out in the deep waters. That he wants our life free. He wants us running, sailing, freely, unencumbered. And how are we going to do that? So last week we talked a little bit about growing our faith. Not just faith in faith and faith in confidence and faith in a positive outlook. But really growing our faith in who God is and what he's promised and putting our full weight and confidence on him. And today I want to take you to another thing that he gives us to grow our faith deep and full. We call them the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines. Now, the word discipline has fallen on hard times. You know this. It's fallen on hard times in my personal life when it comes to discipline with food. Don't nobody laugh out loud, but I've had a rough time with it. Now, I, I don't have a rough time eating food. That's not the problem. 
I don't have a rough time liking food, believing in food, thinking food is good for me. I have a rough time eating it and then exercising at the appropriate level so that I don't continue to grow wider even as I have quit growing taller. All right, that's a pleasant way of saying I'm gaining a little bit of weight. All right, now all that said, here's the thing. Discipline has fallen on hard times, not just with food in our culture at large. Discipline, as it relates to the spiritual disciplines recorded in the Bible, God's gift for us to understand him, and the disciplines God gift for us to know him, to have our minds transformed by him, to take in new information that helps us then to walk in boldness and confidence and freedom, to stand against the entire pressure of the culture, and to say, you may believe this and you may go that way, but I am confident in who I am in Christ. It takes a certain amount of discipline to do that. Now, I don't want to stress today the discipline side. I want us to wrap our minds around a key idea, a key concept, from the pages of God's Word in the book of Romans chapter 12, if you'd like to go there. And then when we get that key concept fixed in just a moment or so, we're going to turn to, words, uh, to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. So Romans 12 and Matthew 6, and we're going to look at these concepts explored by Jesus. So if you have your Bible, go there. If not, on the screens behind me. Here's the basic passage today from the message version that I want to read. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what it says. This is Paul writing to the church, helping them understand the deep faith that God wants to grow them in. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognizing what he wants from you and quickly responding to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you. Develops well-formed maturity in you. This is Paul's writing, helping this church in the city of Rome, this group of Christians, understand the nature of how this change takes place. You've known this, you've seen this, if you've been around church for any length of time at all. Somebody will make a decision to follow Jesus. A follower of Jesus will make a decision to launch out in some area of their Christian life. And they're sincere. They meant it. They weren't lying. They made a real commitment. And then if you observe for any length of time at all, you'll notice that a lot of folks who do that with great boldness and passion and conviction, it doesn't seem to last all that long. It's normal in a Christian environment, in an environment where we call people to change and we call people to make decisions. It's normal for people to make that decision and then over time, the momentum of that decision doesn't carry them very far. Paul observed this in the New Testament times. He observed this in the churches he started. He, he observed people who were very fervent and sincere about their relationship with Jesus. And then he observed in far too many of them this tendency to not actually ever really get out into the open seas. They stay in the harbor, circling over and over and over again. And so he writes to this church at Rome, and he says, I want you to understand this dynamic, that there is a renewing of your mind that can take place and renew you, change you, inform you, equip you in such a way that you can launch out, and you won't be held back by the culture. You won't be held out by the thinking of the world. The stinking thinking that exists in the world around you won't be the thing that you are impacted by. You'll rise above that. And the way it works is this. Let God renew your mind over time. 
Let him plant ideas in your head. Let him give you confidence about things you already know. Let him take you deeper in things you already understand. And in that renewing of your mind that happens over time, you will gain a confidence in him. Your faith will grow. Your faith will grow. Now, the spiritual disciplines aren't about performing some checklist. I did my prayers today. I fasted this year. I gave to people in need. I watched my, my, my mouth and my tongue. I, 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 I walked in for getting. It's not a checklist. The whole point here, maybe this has been elusive to you, so I want to give you some information to help you give you boldness and want you to, to launch out here. The whole purpose of the spiritual disciplines is for your benefit and for mine. In the passage we're going to read from Jesus in just a minute, you're going to see him use a word that, depending on your religious background, you might find a little interesting in our context today. You might find it even a little bit troubling. Jesus is going to talk about the very practical benefit we get, the benefit to us when we operate in the spiritual disciplines. When we, over time, take in information from God's word, from God's universe, about his character and nature, we're going to discover from Jesus the reward that we get when we do that. And the reward, very simply put, the category it falls in, is a deeper faith, a deeper faith. In our culture at large today, and I'm sad to say, even in our churches, sometimes, the level of faith maturity is woefully inadequate. People have hunches and ideas. Sometimes they know to do things they don't do. Sometimes they're ignorant about certain aspects of God and what he wants to do in this world. And that, that's, a certain amount of ignorance is, is completely understandable. I'm not talking about ignorance bred from a lack of exposure. The spiritual disciplines, the reason we're called to them, they go to the heart of a different kind of operational ignorance. An ignorance that is operating in the face of information that is available, that is obtainable, that is understandable, and yet it's not grasped. It's not taken hold of and brought close to our lives. And Paul, as a pastor, as a concerned leader in the church, he didn't want people to avoid engaging the spiritual disciplines. Instead, he wanted them to fully embrace them because he knew from personal experience, he knew from watching others who had gone before him, that when we embrace the disciplines, the beneficiary is us. <laughs> when I embrace the disciplines, I'm the one that benefits. And that idea is not simply some self-help psychology. This is exactly from the pages of God's Word. So, go in your Bible now to Matthew chapter 6. And when you get there, I want to make you aware of what we're going to be talking about. It's this. When you see as God sees, you'll do as God says. When you see the world the way God sees it, when you see God the way he sees himself, when you see yourself the way God sees you, when you see the world around you the way God sees it, it changes everything. And when we see things as God sees them, then we're going to do as God says. Our faith gets deep. It's, it's very simple. The gap between us believing and mentally assenting that God is correct and his way is the right way and us actually walking in that way, that gap gets closed. When we become convinced of the information God gives us and he grows our faith, then when we take that information in, the gap between hearing it, understanding it, and then living it gets very short. I don't know about you, but it's true for me at least. Sometimes I'll know something. I'll know it's good. No, it's right. I believe it. I've even found myself telling other people they should do it. And yet in my own life, there's a gap between that knowledge I have and me walking out. It's really 
it's really a faith gap. It's me hearing and knowing on some level, but not putting my confidence and trust in what God had said and then living that in my own life. It could be said, just an idea here for you to think about, maybe talk about in your small group. It could be said that every sin that you commit, that your friends commit, that your husband commits, that your every sin is simply an operational lack of faith. That there's some area in life where God has given direction, given instruction, and we knew it on some level, but we didn't trust it. We didn't believe it. We didn't think it would satisfy. We didn't think it was enough. And so in our sense of gap, in our sense of loss, in our sense of longing for more than what God said we deserve or what God said we should have, in our sense of believing that we should get it in a different way than God said we should get it, we launch out in some uncharted territory, some area where we have no business being. And that temptation that first took place in here then gives fruit to sin in our lives. Yeah. The reason God gives us the spiritual disciplines, and the Bible talks about them, and Jesus is plain about them, is he wants them to grow our faith. So one day, Jesus was talking, and over a series of a few days, he gives an amazing amount of teaching. Matthew, one of the disciples, is there and hears this, and he begins to gather that teaching into a few pages of writing, Today we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It, it, I, I assume, I, we don't really know, but it, it looks as if Matthew hits the highlights of Jesus' teachings over a period of time and encapsulates them into a relatively brief period of literature for us around Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, like the most clear teaching from Jesus, where if you're in your Bible and it's one of those that has the teachings of Jesus in red, his words in red, it's a lot of red, you know, red writing there. Right in the middle of that, Jesus gives the clearest and most articulate expression of the benefit and the purpose of spiritual disciplines. And he does it not to beat anybody up, not to make anybody feel bad, not to add to your to-do list. He does it to renew our minds, to plant information in here that we trust and believe. And in trusting and believing the words he spoke, it begins to transform our lives as, he wrote, as Paul wrote in, in, in Romans, it begins to transform our lives from the inside out. It's not a set of rules we put on ours, ourselves from the exterior and then try to conform the heart to. No, no. As we engage them, there are deposits of information and knowledge and revelation from God. And that begins to transform our minds over time from the inside out. And the only real lasting change in your life and mine happens when our mind is renewed. I don't do much counseling. I have quite a bit of training in that area, but I know this, that if you keep having thinking, or stinking thinking, you won't change your behavior. If your marriage is continually having the same arguments over and over and over again, if that's your experience in your marriage, then somebody's holding on to some stinking thinking. And we can attempt to change the behavior all we want, but once that behavior is entrenched in the lifestyle, it's not simply a matter of changing the way we interact and trying to add a few key words on here and there. The fundamental way we think inside our heads about the reality of our marriage needs to change or it never changes. The mind has to be renewed before the behavior can be changed. Jesus, who knows how we're wired, understands that, so he writes in Matthew chapter 6 these words. He says, verse 1, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. Now, Acts of righteousness are Jesus' way of talking about spiritual disciplines. They're the acts, the behaviors of right living. 
the be acts of righteousness are the behaviors of right living. We shorthand them today, call them spiritual disciplines. He says, don't do your spiritual disciplines before men to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Well, wait, wait, wait. Rewards? <laughs> I thought we loved Jesus out of the overflow of our heart, and it's not about getting from God and, and expecting from him. On some level, you're exactly right. I talked a little bit about that last night. We, or last week, we assent to his lordship because he's lord and we're not. We agree to his lordship because he's in charge and we're not. And it's not really about what we get out of it. Ultimately, it's simply acknowledging he's God and we're not. But Jesus said in that kind of a relationship right here, he wanted to explore with his teachers 2,000 years ago and record in the pages of the Bible for us today, he wanted to explore some of the benefits of walking in that lordship relationship. He said that if you do that, if you let me grow your faith, there are benefits. If you will do these acts of righteousness, then there are rewards that can come to you. But if you do them before men, you're not going to get any reward from your Father in heaven. In verse 2 he says, so when you give to the needy, this is the first act of righteousness or spiritual discipline. When you give to the needy. Now, in, in Jesus' day, he's talking primarily to Jewish people. Here, here's what their life, in general terms, financially looked like. They would make some money, and the typical observant Jew of that day would give somewhere between about 18 and 20% of their income away to the, to the temple, to the thing of God, to the priest, to the work of the, uh, of, of the local temple. And, and that temple was the center of activity for the entire culture. And so that's what they did. But in, in, in addition to that, they would give what we would often call alms. Alms to the poor. Now, you may have seen this in a movie. Somebody sitting by a gate, tinkling a, a cup. Alms, alms, alms to the poor. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. He says, now, when you give to the needy, when you give to the, the things that you see in the world that touch your heart and you want to invest there to try to make a difference, when you do that, he says, and, and by the way, he says, when you do it, not if you do it. He starts off by saying, these are spiritual disciplines. Don't do them simply to be acknowledged before men, because if you do that, you don't get the reward from your Father in heaven. So when you do this first one, you give to the needy. Don't announce it with trumpets, as do the hypocrites, in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their, and there's the word again, reward in full. Jesus says that there's a way of giving alms to people that, undercuts the whole purpose of this spiritual discipline. And it was observed every day in the temple courts around the religious center of activity in that culture. People would give money, and with great fanfare, it would be announced to the world, either by them or by their associates. I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it probably looks something like this. Hey, here comes Bill. He's got a big pile of money. Look at how he's given his money. And one story Jesus tells about the little widow who secretly walks over and puts her offering into the receptacle while a rich man comes and with great fanfare slowly pours his metal coins into the metal receptacle so they can cling and clang loud enough for people to hear for a very long time. And Jesus says, the man who gave that way, he got his reward because everybody saw him. And he got his reward from men. He was honored by men. But this little lady who secretly put hers in, Two mites, less than a penny, about a half a cent. She put all that she had. She, she had two. She could have kept one, but she gave them both. 
She didn't have anything, and so she really gave, not just out of her excess, but out of her sense of sacrifice. Jesus said, she, who wasn't observed by many, she is rewarded by God. Jesus says this, there's something about spiritual disciplines that when we do them, they grow our faith deeply. They say we trust God. We, they say in our behavior, they begin to renew our mind by saying to us, I trust God fully, and I'm willing to put in place the activities he says I need to put in place in order to grow, in order to grow deep. I'm going to run counter to the world. I'm going to run against the culture. And I'm instead going to take Jesus' words at face value. If he says that when I give to the needy, I should give this way, then I'm going to give to the needy, and I'm going to give it in the way he says to give it. The typical Jew gave 18 to 20% of their money away, and above and beyond they gave to the poor, to the needy, to those around them. It was, in our language today, tithes and offerings. And they did it because it was the way they were trained But they did it also because they believed that it was the simple, obvious way of giving back to God some of what he had blessed them with. Jesus says, when you give it secretly, not letting the right hand hand know what the left hand is doing. There's a phrase that maybe you didn't know Jesus said. When you give it, the right hand shouldn't know that the left hand did it. There's a certain amount of secrecy around it. Not fanfare for yourself. When you do that, what's happening is, is because you're not doing it for men, you're doing it unto the Lord. There's a renewing of your mind that's taking place. And over time, that simple dependence, Jesus, if you said it, I'm willing to do it. If you said it's important, I'm willing to engage it. And we begin to close the gap, and we live our faith practically daily. He said, here's what's happening. You're growing deeper and deeper and deeper in your faith. I love how Jesus began talking about almsgiving. He he didn't say, if you choose to do this. He said, when you choose to do this. I've never known a mature believer who didn't take serious the role of money in their lives. Never. I've never known a mature believer. I've known a lot of believers who knew a lot about Bible stuff. I've known a lot of believers who were good at certain aspects of Christianity. I know a lot of believers who convinced a lot of people that they were special and informed and anointed and But I've never known somebody who had deep, consistent faith across the spectrum of their lives who didn't begin to take seriously the role of money and its hold on their heart. The competition of money for stuff. Now, let let me get you to think about this. Now, just so you know, I'm not today having a primary purpose to give you money. That's between you and the Lord. It's irrelevant. I am, however, trying to get you to take seriously and myself to take seriously. When Jesus says for us to do something... The simple automatic yes in our hearts. Lord, if you said to do it, if it's clear from your word, this is an expectation for followers of Jesus, I'm just, I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to begin to renew my mind by simply obeying your word and walking out. I'm going to take in the stuff that you said I should take in. I'm going to engage the stuff you said I should engage. And I'm going to trust you, Lord, then to deal with the rest of the stuff. It's interesting to me that as followers of Jesus, we trust him with everything from the moment we take our last breath forward. Think about this. Everything about your existence from the time you draw your last breath forward, don't we we trust the Lord with that? It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, Muslim, believe in some cosmic force, whatever, you know, the, the nature. All of us on some level believe deep down that the moment we take our last breath, 
there's going to be some force, some entity that's going to meet us at that place and take care of us. You know why we believe that? Because we don't have a choice. <laughs> you don't have a choice. I mean, when you take your last breath, you're out of control. There's nothing you can do. As followers of Jesus, we take great comfort that at the moment we take our last breath, the Bible says we open our eyes and there he is. <laughs> we take great comfort in that. Jesus says, though, that the spiritual disciplines, their biggest impact isn't from the moment you take your last breath forward. They're from the moment you take your last breath backwards. And that while it's very easy for followers of Jesus to put our trust in Jesus for eternity, Jesus said, he observed, that it's very tough for people that want to follow God to trust him from their last breath backwards. And then he says, the number one competitor for your heart inching out the place that God's supposed to hold, the number one place, the number one challenge, in the language they spoke, they call it mammon, or money, or stuff. It's much easier to put our confidence and trust in earning money, in money's ability to take care of us, in the quest for money, in anxiety about money. And Jesus says for his followers, there needs to be a renewing of the mind that takes place because being in that mode of culture's preoccupation with money, here's what Jesus says, it's bondage to you. It's bondage to me. And with, when followers of Jesus don't think about it and when we're not contemplating it and we don't consider it and we don't let the words of Jesus renew our mind, what happens is it actually builds a cage around us. And some of us are very successful, but we're still in a cage. And some of us are riddled with debt, and we're still in a cage. For the followers of Jesus, he wants us free. And he says that your heavenly Father will reward you, reward me, when we give and we don't make a big deal about it. When we give, not if we give, when we give and we don't make a big deal about it. It's one of the disciplines he wants us to engage. And he says when you do that, you begin to break the stranglehold of money's grip on our hearts. You don't think Christians struggle with money? Oh, they do. They do. Half of them are afraid every time they come to church, money's going to be talked about. They convince themselves, and th they do it with some evidence, because sometimes it happens, that religious leaders are only interested in getting money from them. But at the end of the day, every believer stands before Jesus and says, I seriously trust your words about money, that I should not let it have control of my heart. Instead, out of what you've blessed me with, I should give regularly a portion back to you, and I should do it without making a big deal about it. I should do it not before men. I should do it unto my Father. And my Father who sees what I do will reward me. He'll honor me. Those that do it for men, they get their honor from men. Those that do it to be seen, they get their honor there. That's their reward. But those who do it for the Father, the Christian, the believer who takes seriously and begins to wrestle with and think about what the Bible has to say about money and its potential hold on, well, those people, they get rewarded by their Father in heaven. And it begs the question, doesn't it? <laughs> do I trust what Jesus says about money? Do I really? I mean, let's put aside how much I know about Scripture and how often I go to church and what groups I lead, and let's just talk about whether or not I take Jesus at face value with money. That when God blesses me with something called money, I should give a portion back. It's a spiritual discipline. Do I believe that the Bible's right, that if I engage spiritual disciplines, that somehow my Heavenly Father will reward me? Sometimes in ways I understand, sometimes in ways that supersede my understanding. 
And we don't like to talk about money a whole lot, so let's move on to the next one, verse uh, number 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, here's another one of the disciplines. When you pray, don't undercut your praying by doing it this way. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, my followers, those that have a heart for God, those that are leaning in, those that want the renewed mind, those that want the deeper faith, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. That doesn't mean we never pray corporately. But the benefit, the transforming power of you and me having a prayer life, that is spending time with God, is huge. I've never known a deep Christian. I've known Christians who've known a lot of Bible, known a lot of theology, read a lot of Christian books. I've never known a deep Christian who didn't have a functional prayer life where they carved out time with regularity to talk to God and made space for God to talk back to them. Time with God is essential in my development and in yours. That's why every week we, we have people write on their connect card. Put your name, we're going to pray with you. Prayer is essential to the work of God. There's something about the renewal that takes place in us when we pray that no other activity can, sa- can be supplemented for that. No other activity can take the place of prayer for giving us a sense of intimacy and closeness to God for renewing our mind. Giving our money. Spending time with God. There's a thousand expressions of how that can look. In a local church, in a missions organization, in the privacy of your, 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 your house when nobody's there, in a small group, joining hands together praying, opening the pages of God's word and spending time with him there. These spiritual disciplines, here's what your heavenly father in mind says to us. When you do them, don't undercut them by doing them on display for men Instead, give your money and spend time with God. And your father who sees you do that, he will reward you. And I want to ask you again, do you believe he will? Do you believe that your heavenly father will reward you if you give unto him financially a piece of what he's blessed you with? And if you will carve out time to spend time with him? Or do you think it's not worth it? It's just a fundamental wrestling issue that each believer has to come to terms with. Nobody can fully talk you into it. No one. It's something you have to decide for yourself. Do I take Jesus at face value? You want to know how to be running the boat of your life on the open seas free and clear? It's true for me. When I take Jesus at face value and I begin to walk in faith quickly without having to be convinced, without having to have everything taken care of, oh, I still have my questions, I still struggle. Sometimes I don't even really want to do it, but I say he called me to it and I start walking. I have found that's when the seas open up and the sky is clear. There is no substitute for you taking serious Jesus' teachings on money and time with him. In the history of this church, we've given away, this is a, 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 um, a rough estimate, some 1,500 Bibles in the history of this church. We used to leave them free, and people would take them, and then we discovered people would take multiple copies, and we built a building and kind of ran short on cash, and so we don't give it much away. But 
We've given away some 1,500 copies of the Bible for people to read. Now, why, why would we do Why would we make that investment when, when most everybody in our church can afford to go out and buy a Bible and read it and spend time with God? It's very simple. Why? We believe there's no substitute for opening the pages of God's Word and spending time with Him. When you and I begin our day with this idea, God, today I'm going to face people and opportunities and challenges, and I don't want to face them alone. Would you be with me? Would you guide me? Would you help me watch my words? Would you impact my thinking? And would you help me bring honor to you today? When that is a prayer that you pray, or something like that, we believe that over time, that attitude, that prayer, that discipline will change and transform you. And you'll benefit. That Jesus' words will be true in your life. That when you pray, you don't pray to be seen by people. God, I think you I'm better than them. God, I think you I'm so much mature than them. I think... God, I just, I need you today. Would you help me keep my words and my thoughts reflecting of you and the values you have for me? There's a thousand ways to do that, but if you take Jesus seriously, it'll change you. When I encourage you to read your Bible like I did last week, and many of you said you were going to and memorize some words, I believe that without even knowing mechanically how it works, when you just take him at face value, God, if I spend time with you, and if I don't do it in a way to draw attention to myself, instead, I do it as unto you, and my heart is open and receptive and soft before you, that if you'll do that, it'll benefit you. Your faith will grow deep, and your influence will grow wide. God will use you powerfully. If you're married, let me tell you what else it'll do. It'll help your marriage. When you get up and say, God, I've been fighting a lot with my wife, I've been fighting a lot with my husband, but today, Lord, in every thought, in every word, I want to be a biblical husband. I want to love my wife as Christ loved the church. God, today, I want to be a biblical wife. I want to honor my husband. God, in all that I say, and all that I think, and how I treat my kids, and how I engage my work, and how I come home, the attitude, I want to, God, would you help me live your word today? And you invite him in, and you spend that little bit of time with him. The spiritual fruit of that benefits you. And so the enemy of your soul wants to convince you that it's not worth it. That you don't have time for it. That you're too busy. That you tried it before and it didn't work. Because if he can keep you from engaging spiritual disciplines, he knows you'll never grow deep. You'll think you're deep. You'll convince others you're deep. But you'll never be deep. And your influence will never be wide. So against the thoughts of this world, Jesus comes and renews our mind. He says, every believer has to take seriously the grip of money on their hearts and come to terms with it in some way that honors God. And it's always going to look like giving back some of what God gave you. And every believer has to come to grips with the other commodity that they have, and that's time and giving some of it back to God to work on the relationship, to be open to being transformed. When we do it, it benefits us. Or don't we believe that? Do we believe Jesus was just sounding spiritual because that's what he does? I think the enemy has been so successful in making this a matter of guilt, a matter of obligation and checking off the list, believing that people who encourage us to do this have ulterior motives because his goal isn't at all whether or not you pray or give or read the bible his whole motivation is to stop you from growing in your faith and jesus says you can't do it until you take care of money 
and time and give a portion of both of those back to the Lord with open heart and open mind, willing to be transformed. And then he promises us that if we do it, he'll reward us. Parents, real quick, let me, let me give you a couple quick tips on how you can help do this for your kids. How you can help them understand this and build this into the routine of their life. <laughs> One, you can read sections of the Bible, like out loud, Bible storybooks. And if you have kids in our kids, the, the 4C parent page, and you can just bring God's word and prayer into the routine of your family a couple times a week. At the dinner table, <laughs> you can teach them to pray, number two, by letting them hear you pray for the food. You know, you know what we do at our house? It's a simple prayer. God, thank you for this food. Amen. Now, it sounds silly. Sometimes our kids will pray it, and, and I don't think they're trying to say the shortest prayer possible. I think what they're starting to do without even knowing it, they're beginning to internalize that this food on our table is a gift from God, and we're going to acknowledge He is at work in our lives. You can teach them to pray. You can let them hear you pray. Let them hear you pray. You know what will grow the faith of your kid? Hearing you pray and call out to God about the things that matter to you. Now, when they're young kids, you filter some of that age-appropriate level, of course, but God, imagine if your, your teenage son or daughter heard you pray this prayer. God, I, I want to be a good parent. I don't always know how to do that. So God, would you help me in word and thought to stay focused on your heart for my kid? And God, when I fail, would you help me to have quick apologies? It's powerful if you pray it. It's powerful if you demonstrate for your kid how important prayer is to you. And it's powerful when they hear you pray for them. You know what it does for them? It gives them a sense that prayer is important in life. You're parenting, you're modeling. It's why while even Jesus said to pray in private, when his disciples asked him how to pray, he told them how to pray. Number three, parents. You can let your kids, if you want to teach them about this stuff, you can let them give something every week in the offering. Every week. Every week before we went to church, there was offering laying on the counter. We would grab it and we would give it. It was my dad's money, but we would give it. But then when I would go out and I'd mow a lawn and earn a little bit, my dad would say to me, now how much of that belongs to the Lord? I wasn't beating me over the head, but it built in me a sense that all my blessings are from the Lord. My ability to earn it is from the Lord. The air I breathe is from the Lord. And he only wants a portion back. And so then when I read the words of Jesus, they resonate with me on the deepest level. You're right, Lord. The biggest competitor for my heart is money. And I never think I have enough time for you. And yet there's your word staring me in the face. That if I take you seriously here, you will reward me. God, I want to trust you. So I'm not waiting for my emotions to believe it. I'm going to step out in faith and begin to do what you told me I should do. And I found if you'll have that attitude... It'll change everything, everything about your walk with him. That if you can't do it on these most basic levels, you may convince everybody else that your faith is deep and wide, but it won't be deep and your influence really won't go wide for the kingdom. So why don't we do this? Why don't we get ready to take a few steps together? Grab out that connect card and let's take a few steps together and let's see <laughs> if we're really willing to trust the Lord and what he said. So, here's the next step, hey. I'm wondering if anybody in the room would say, I need to accept this Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. If you do, it's pretty simple. God wants you to have an attitude that says, 
I'm a sinner. I have fallen. I have not done it well on my own. I need you in my life. Would you forgive me? Would you become the Lord of my life? Would you lead my life? The Bible says it this way. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. You can check next step A. And when the offering buckets come by at the end of service, put that in there. And we'll send you some information about what that looks like. It's as simple as I explained. And in a moment when I pray, you can use your words. You can borrow mine and say, God, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? I want you to lead my life from this point forward. When you pray that prayer, when that's the attitude of your heart, we believe that you begin a relationship with Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. And it changes everything. How about next step B? Anybody say, hey, I'm ready to get baptized. In a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism. If you'll check the box, we'll be in communication with you, ask you a few simple questions, see if this is really your heart, and if you understand, and then we'll get things rolling for you. How about next step C? All right, rubber meets the road here. Ben, I'm going to give a set percentage of my income to the Lord's work for the next 40 days. I don't know what yours needs to be, but if you're not walking in obedience here, why don't you just try to trust Jesus and see if what he said about money, I gave you just a snippet of it, it's true that if you give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with, do it for 40 days. Uh, 40, 40 seems like a biblical number. No, I don't know. 40 days. Just, just see, all right? God, I'm going to give 1% back. I don't give it. I'm going to give one. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna, God, I give about 1% a year. I'm going to give 3% over the next 40 days. And just take that step of faith. How about next step D? I'm going to find time to invite God to lead my life through prayer for the next 40 days. I don't know what you need to pray, but just borrow my prayer. God, today I'm going to face people and, and situations. Would you lead me? Do that on the way to work. And just carve out a small amount of time and talk to him and ask him to be the Lord of your life. See what that does if you do it every day for 40 days. Or how about next step E? I'm going to make time to read at least one verse from God's word for the next 40 days. Now there are two big tools you can use. BibleGateway.com, 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 and it will email you verses. You can set up a reading plan. You can go, here's the other one, FourCornersChurch.com if you want to automate your giving. And you can, these are tools you can use. Now, as an act of our solidarity behind Jesus, here's what we're going to do. No matter where you are on the spectrum of these spiritual disciplines, we're going to take communion together as a church. If you're a follower of Jesus, a good one or a bad one, and I've been both and am both. You're invited to come to the table and remember what he's done for you. And let the remembrance of that spur in you, not a sense of guilt or obligation, but a sense of gratitude and opportunity. The way it works around here is we remember that the broken bread that we pick up off the plate, that that's his broken body meant to heal all of our brokenness. And whether we dip it in the larger cup, which is wine, or the smaller cup, which is grape juice, that that liquid in that cup represents his poured out blood that covers all of our sins. And we put it in our mouth. And it's as if we're feasting spiritually on all that he has for us. So I'm going to pray right now about these things. And when I get done praying, I'm going to invite you to stand and come forward. Would you bow with me right now? Lord Jesus, God, I have to confess to you that I have a hard time sometimes taking you at your word. And sometimes I, I want to blame the devil for that. And sometimes the truth is it's just my own self. And yet today, God, I'm praying for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would take a bold step towards the open seas to take you at face value. And when it comes to money and time, that we 
carve out a discipline to give a portion back to you. And we would do it <laughs> because you're Lord. And we would do it expecting you to keep your word, that you will reward us. That others may not see it and others may not understand, but you, our Heavenly Father, who sees it all, that you'll reward us openly as you see fit. God, I pray for those today who are committing their lives to you for the very first time. They're saying, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Jesus, lead my life. God, I pray for those of us that are going to try to step forward in money because I know there'll be spiritual pushback. I pray for those that are going to step forward in prayer because I know there'll be spiritual pushback. I pray for those that are going to move forward in engaging your word because I know there'll be spiritual pushback. God, give us boldness to trust you against the onslaught of the enemy, against our own egos, against our hurts and woundings from the past, and help us to grow in faith towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.